We come together from many places and many ways of life. And amid our many differences, we join as one. We know that there is strength in connection. We know that there is comfort in our togetherness. We know that there is hope in our diverse unity. In a moment I will light our chalice flame and we know that when we kindle that flame, today as every day, it enables us to see beyond disagreement and strife, beyond anger and fear, beyond different beliefs and understandings. May we learn to see the beauty in each and every person and free our love to work in the world. Words from my friend and colleague Andy Pakula, Minister with the Newington Green Congregation. So good morning everybody and welcome to Essex Church and to our gathered community of Kensington Unitarians. We meet on Sundays for all sorts of reasons. Some of us need time for ourselves, time to go within, time to sit quietly with our thoughts and we find that easier to do in good company with others. Some of us are hoping to listen for some inner voice of guidance, perhaps. Some of us are here to reconnect with one another, to enjoy this sense of community, a community built around our search for truth and meaning in life. Whatever brings us here, it's good to spend time together, isn't it? To turn away from the outer world for a bit with its hustle and bustle, and to find that inner place. And I think in that inner world of ours, there's, there's time to expand, perhaps, into what we truly are, um, to find the guidance within ourselves. So I invite you now to take a moment to align yourself with all that is great and good, whatever that means to you. Maybe the words spirit and life and love, maybe that, that means something to you, something that courses through us all and all that exists. Let align ourselves with that. And may this loved building of ours be filled with peace. Whatever is going on in the world outside, may our silences, our thoughts, our singing, reflect our gratitude for life and may we be both strengthened and softened for the day that lies ahead. And may this, um, may this chalice flame remind us of our connection with Unitarian communities the world over. And as I often say now, may it remind us that we are one people living on one planet. And it's asking one question of us, how shall we live? And we can settle now in a time of, of prayer and reflection.
And we use that word pray here, even though some of us stumble with the very thought of offering our thoughts to that which is unknown, that which for us may be nameless. But let us pray this day to all that is wise and true, both within us and beyond, that we might find that wisdom for ourselves and so align ourselves once more with that which leads to the highest good for all. I invite you to join in thinking of all those who are homeless this day, as we, we know that the weather is going to get colder and it's been so very, very wet. Let us pray for all those who are homeless, all those who do not have a place of their own, nor safety, nor shelter. Let us remember all those who live in fear within their homes, where violence wields its power. Let us pray for all those who struggle to afford the homes in which they live, especially in this expensive capital city. For anyone who finds the regular bills or the rent or the mortgage payments a source of distress. And oh, let us pray for those who leave their homelands and make dangerous journeys. People who are seeking new places to call home. May help arrive for all those who suffer in these ways and may we play our part in assisting others with compassion ever in our hearts and, and the awareness that their sufferings could so easily be ours if the world was just a little different. And if we are the fortunate ones for whom home is perhaps a place of pleasure and comfort, well, let's give thanks for the homes we enjoy. Let's never take it for granted. Let's appreciate all the simple gifts of life that we have. And not just in our homes, but in the very way we live each and every day. May we practice the gracious arts of hospitality, welcoming stranger as friend, allowing people to be themselves, and recognizing the spark of divine potential that lies within one and all. And in a few moments of shared stillness now, let's send our thoughts, our prayers to wounded places. Perhaps they, they are in ourselves or in those we know and in our wider world. All who are suffering this day.
And may we humans find ways to live more kindly and more peaceably in community this day and all days. Amen. Uh, we're going to hear a reading now from a, a book by Alain de Botton. De Botton is a philosopher and writer. Some of you will know him. Um, I think he's particularly well known because over 10 years ago now, he established the School of Life uh, with some friends. And the School of Life is now a global phenomena uh, with a mission to help people lead more fulfilled lives. Um, and at the core of its work, it's helping us understand ourselves better from, and I think the base of it is the, the idea that self-knowledge is crucial to better decision-making, particularly around love and work. Um, so the School of Life publish books, they run classes here in London or around the world, and they offer free YouTube videos on popular philosophical topics. So in this extract, and I do, if you're this way inclined, I recommend the whole book to you, Religion for Atheists. But in this extract, we're going to hear from de Botton's um, chapter about his secular upbringing in a Jewish family and his dawning understanding that there are aspects of religion that are valuable. I was brought up in a committedly atheistic household as the son of two secular Jews who placed religious beliefs somewhere on a par with an attachment to Santa Claus. I recall my father reducing my sister to tears in an attempt to dislodge her modestly held notion that a reclusive God might dwell somewhere in the universe. She was eight years old at the time. If any members of their social circle were discovered to harbour clandestine religious sentiments, my parents would start to regard them with the sort of pity more commonly reserved for those diagnosed with a degenerative disease and could from then on never be persuaded to take them seriously again. Though I was powerfully swayed by my parents' attitudes, in my mid-twenties I underwent a crisis of faithlessness. My feelings of doubt had their origins in listening to Bach's cantatas, were further developed in the presence of certain Bellini Madonnas, and became overwhelming with an introduction to Zen architecture. However, it was not until my father had been dead for several years and buried under a Hebrew headstone in a Jewish cemetery in Wilsdon, northwest London, because he had, intriguingly, omitted to make more secular arrangements, that I began to face up to the scale of my ambivalence regarding the doctrinaire principles with which I had been inculcated in childhood. I never wavered in my certainty that God did not exist. I was simply liberated by the thought that there might be a way to engage with religion without having to subscribe to its supernatural content. A way, to put it in more abstract terms, to think about fathers without upsetting my respectful memory of my own father. I recognised that my continuing resistance to a th I recognised that my continuing resistance to theories of an afterlife or of heavenly resonance was no justification for giving up on the music, buildings, prayers, rituals, feasts, shrines, pilgrimages, communal meals and illuminated manuscripts of the faith. 
Secular society has been unfairly impoverished by the loss of an array of practices and themes which atheists typically find it impossible to live with because they seem too closely associated with, to quote Nietzsche's useful phrase, the bad odors of religion. We have grown frightened of the word morality. We bridle at the thought of hearing a sermon. We flee from the idea that art should be uplifting or have an ethical mission. We don't go on pilgrimages. We can't build temples. We have no mechanisms for expressing gratitude. The notion of reading a self-help book has become absurd to the high-minded. We resist mental exercises. Strangers rarely sing together. We are presented with an unpleasant choice between either committing to peculiar concepts about immaterial deities or letting go entirely of a host of consoling, subtle, or just charming rituals for which we struggle to find equivalents in secular society. This is a difficult reading that we're going to hear now, and I, I won't read it in its entirety. Um, some of you may know it, it's by the Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, Call Me By My True Names, and it very much came into my mind this week because he is a Vietnamese Buddhist teacher, and as the horrible truths started to develop during the week when we realised that 39 people had lost their life in a refrigerated lorry, not all that far from London in Essex, and that some of them had come from Vietnam and their families had clubbed together to pay sometimes £30,000 for their journey to this country, hoping to build a better life for themselves. It, I know it touched you deeply and it touched me. So Thich Nhat Hanh was on my mind and this particular reading came to me because you'll know that after the Vietnamese war, many Vietnamese people took to boats uh, to escape the terrible situation in their country. And um, we here in this country were watching it on the news and watching those boats sink and sometimes nobody helping them. At that time, Thich Nhat Hanh was in um, what's known as Plum Village in France, which is a Buddhist community. And he um, describes being there and receiving information about the boat people, about families who feared their loved ones had drowned. And then there was a particular piece of news, because one of the things that used to happen was that the boats were attacked by pirates and there was a particular piece of news about a 12-year-old girl who'd been abused by a pirate and who leapt to her death in the waters because she could not bear to, to live anymore. And it is worth going to the Plum Village website to read more about this piece of, of meditation that Thich Nhat Hanh wrote because he sat with the awfulness of the knowledge of what had happened to that young girl and meditated on that and eventually came to an understanding that if he had been born in a particular village at a particular time, rather than being a Buddhist teacher, he would have become a pirate because that was the only thing to do. And that sense of this too could be me if the circumstances were changed, it seems to, to me, and I know many of you, a vital development in our thinking about one another, that we're all in this together. 
In some ways, we're all in that boat or that refrigerated lorry. So these are extracts from Thich Nhat Hanh's meditation. Please call me by my true names. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow. Even today, I am still arriving. Look deeply. Every second, I am arriving to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond and I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am that child starving, all skin and bones. And I am the arms merchant, selling deadly weapons to that child's country. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, having been abused by a sea pirate, throwing herself into the ocean, and I am that pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing, understanding, loving. I am the member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay that debt of blood to my people dying slowly in those labour camps. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom over all the earth. And my pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. Words of compassion from Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh. And I invite us to take all that he is offering into in this meditation into um, some time for music when Benji and Sandra are playing an arrangement of a, an old Irish folk song, The Lark in the Clear Air.
So we're going to move into a, a more meditative time now. Um, so I invite you to get yourselves comfortable, to put down anything that you don't want to hold on to or hold on to anything or anyone you would like to hold on to. And, and in this time of meditation, I thought it would be worth us remembering that um, today marks the start of Diwali in, in Hindu and Sikh communities. Uh, there may be fireworks tonight. And, and if you know a bit about Diwali, I mean, it's a beautifully complex festival. But it, it, at its core, it's a celebration of light and goodness. It also highlights the victory of knowledge over ignorance. And I think that's something where um, a lot of us are seeking in, in how we might live today. So let's just use the gentle rhythm of our breathing to settle us now and allow us to, to turn inwards. Perhaps focusing perhaps on the candles or, or if we prefer closing our eyes. and considering the importance of knowledge and truth in our world, when falsities can so quickly spread, and when even in our own lives we know the difficulty of actually truly reaching what, what we might call truth. Life is complex, isn't it? And yet that human urge towards education, towards understanding, towards shared knowledge seems a vital part of civilization. <coughs> so as we enter a, a few minutes of stillness and silence together now, which will end with a chime from our bell, I invite you to stay with that idea of the light of knowledge being able to overcome ignorance. Well, I, um, I don't know about you, but I often find myself these days feeling a little bit behind the times. It's only this week that I discovered that my phone, which is over there now, um, has been counting how many steps I take every day. And it's been doing this for years, apparently. <laughs> and the statistics are there for me to pore over and get obsessed about. Now, 
What I could really do with is a device that tells me how long I've been staring at a computer screen and then forces me to stand up, go outside and breathe more fresh air and then perhaps take more steps and count them for me. I'd like to pretend that all my staring at a computer screen is to do with vital work. But no, I can't be alone in thinking that much of my time on a computer is actually wasted time. And it's, so, it's with some doubt now that I recommend that you all waste some of your precious time and try an internet quiz that will tell you more about yourself. Um, if, if you haven't heard of Belief-O-Matic, well, it's on the BeliefNet website and I suggest you give it a go. I'm quoting now from their website. Ever wondered what religion you are? Are you sure your faith is the best choice for you? Take our religion quiz and find out. Answer 20 questions about your concept of God, the afterlife, human nature and more, and Belief-O-Matic will tell you what religion or spiritual path, if any, best suits your beliefs. It's only 20 questions, it only takes five minutes, it gets you thinking. What can be wrong with that? Well, the only problem for me is that I haven't done that quiz just once. I've done it lots of times over the years. And you know, each time I've done it, I've ended up, they've ended up suggesting a different faith for me. There has been a Unitarian suggestion, humanist, Reformed Judaism, Quaker, um, and they do have a warning at the bottom of their webpage. Belief-O-Matic assumes no legal liability for the ultimate fate of your soul. <laughs> and, and as a quiz, it is seriously limited. Um, uh, certainly a while back it was placing all Muslims in one group rather than recognising that like Christianity and most other faiths it contains many strands that have been emerging through its long history so, so don't, don't raise your hopes um, but you know BeliefNet are not the only ones with a quiz on their website according to the, U the Humanists UK website quiz I am 100% humanist what does that mean? So, you perhaps know, I mean, actually, there's a heck of a lot to humanism. And I foolishly, last night, listened to um, uh, the In Our Time programme on humanism and realised how limited my knowledge truly was. It itself has long roots back. Um, but it's known as a philosophical, an ethical stance, if you like. It's emphasising the value and the agency of human be beings individually and collectively. Humanism prefers rational, critical thinking and evidence rather than accepting dogma or superstition. For me, it means that we humans are 100% responsible for the decisions we make and the effect they have on others. It means for me that we do well to focus on this life and improving things for everybody. It means for me that we're all equal. Really, we are all equal, and that is actually quite hard to live by, isn't it? Um, I mean, you might see the, the word humanist as a positive stance, meaning it's for something, whereas words like maybe atheist, not believing in God, or agnostic, which I also think I might be, not knowing if there is a God, those are positions of faith, aren't they? They're faith statements. 
And I do still delight that I found a faith, Unitarianism, that allows me to be humanist, agnostic, atheist, as well as mystic, and much more beside, depending on how I answer the questions. And that's, of course, because we are non-creedal. We're not identified by our beliefs, more by our attitudes, our ways of being in the world. What perhaps unites us is the belief that we do well to be in community with one another, that there's something of value in exploring together, um, and to respect the way that faith changes through our lives. We don't expect faith to be a one and once and for all decision. And back in the 19th and early 20th century, Unitarians were joining with others to form what were called ethical societies, supporting education for all, encouraging critical approaches to biblical studies. They were part of campaigns to improve public health through clean water and vaccination programs. And I think we're all sobered, aren't we, when we realise still how much there is to be done on those basic health steps that we could actually improve life for everybody. Um, and then over in the States, um, particularly Unitarian and later Unitarian Universalist communities, developed the idea of religious humanism. So with that, that idea of non-theistic rituals and community activities, focusing on human needs, on interests and abilities. Um, and in a way, that is what Alain de Botton is exploring in his book, Religion for Atheists. Just because people don't always hold standard religious beliefs in our increasingly secular Western world, don't we still have needs for community and for connection and expressions of awe and wonder and gratitude? Don't we need rituals to mark the passing of our days? Don't we need time taken out of the everyday um, to think deeper thoughts? And of course, this was the reasoning behind the establishment of the Sunday Assembly that some of you will know about, which now has communities around the world bringing people together to sing and to have conversations, to share quiet times and enjoy tea and cake after their, their meeting. So here in London, they meet on the first and the third Sundays of the month in Conway Hall in Redland Square, which I know some of you know. And of course, Conway Hall has some very interesting roots within Unitarianism and the growth of those ethical societies. Interesting how it can all connects up. I wanted to let you know as well about um, within our Unitarian movement here in London, we have a congregation specifically in Newington Green that is a non-religious church. Their slogan is believe in good. Um, and I think their minister, whose words we heard at the beginning of this service, has done a great job in bringing atheism and church together. And as a community, they have a really strong social justice message. Now, really, I should be grateful that in, the, in all the time I've in, been involved in Unitarianism, we've managed to steer clear of great controversies. But on Boxing Day 2013, we hit the headlines, well, the headlines of the religious pages at least, when Andy Pakula was invited by Tim Berners-Lee, who is, you may know as um, somebody who invented the uh, World Wide Web, 
Um, he was then the editor, guest editor for the week of Radio 4's Today programme. And um, you perhaps know there is considerable controversy in some circles about the thought for the day slot, why there should be any religious broadcasting on the BBC. But the BBC rather clumsily decided that Andy Pecola, who knows Tim Berners-Lee and who had been invited to present Thought for the Day, the BBC stopped him because he was a non-theist. And um, so on Boxing Day 2013, we had not one but two Unitarian ministers presenting that slot. Um, because Andy Pakula went ahead with his broadcast, but an hour earlier, so he did a non-theist slot, and then Jim Corrigal, um, a theist Unitarian minister, gave the usual thought for the day slot at ten minutes to eight. And afterwards, Andy um, questioned the BBC's approach to religion, which probably is in need of a challenge. Um, the BBC talks about not allowing people of no faith to present thought for the day. Well, what does no faith mean? I am a minister of religion, I lead a congregation, I talk about peace and love, and I'm considered a person of no faith because I describe myself as an atheist. So, interesting little controversy there, which got us some useful publicity, and I'm grateful for it. <laughs> So, you, you, I know you're as glad as I am that Unitarian congregations and individuals and ministers cover a wide spectrum of belief position. That's how I'd want it to be in a non-dogmatic community. And I'm grateful to be part of this community that particularly accepts the complexity of belief, even the contradictory nature of belief. In that um, incredibly powerful meditation written by Thich Nhat Hanh that we heard earlier on, Call Me By My True Names, he's recognising, isn't he, that we are all one, that we can see ourselves in one another, and that this world could be a kinder, more compassionate place if we develop those skills. <coughs> These are humanist skills, they're also strangely, deeply mystical skills for me. And we can bring those skills here together in community. And I think we can start to build a better world that we're all aspiring to, knowing that we're not alone and that we live more deeply and fully when we care for others as well as ourselves. May this be so. Amen. This is the mission of our faith to teach the fragile art of hospitality, to revere both the critical mind and the generous heart, to prove that diversity need not mean divisiveness, and to witness to all that we must hold our world in our hands. Amen. Go well. Blessed be. Thank mm -hmm. you.